taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Taking of the sword of uh, Christian theology and the shield of apologetics, uh, while taking Christian truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is yours truly, uh, Brian Chilton, flying solo tonight as uh, Curtis Evelo, our co-host and good friend up in Ronan, Montana. Uh, he has some uh, uh, scheduling conflicts this week. Uh, he's got some birthdays going on up there. I think his wife and his son, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so we certainly want to wish them a happy birthday and uh, hope they have a wonderful and blessed year and many more to come. And so, uh, again, this is kind of going old school, as uh, we did when we first started the podcast. But obviously, uh, the uh, presence of Curtis is uh, sorely missed, as we have some wonderful conversations uh, on the uh, Bellator Christie podcast. Today, we're going to talk about uh, a few different issues, and uh, we're going to uh, run through them here in just a few moments. But this is the first week of May and as we normally do each month, uh, we want to give kind of an update for you stargazers out there about what's to come for the month ahead. So we're going to go uh, for this month's um, Night Sky Report. We're going to go to nasa.com uh, and uh, see the update for the night skies in the month of May 2021. So we'll go to that report right now. What's up for May? This month, a rocky planet roundup and a super blood moon eclipse. Beginning mid-May, if you can find a clear view toward the western horizon, you'll have an opportunity to see all four of the rocky inner planets of our solar system at the same time, with your own eyes. Starting around May 14th, cast your gaze to the west about half an hour after sunset local time to see if you can spot Mercury, Venus, and Mars. And well, Earth is kind of hard to miss. To see near the horizon, you need an unobstructed view, free of nearby trees and buildings. Some of the best places for this are the shores of lakes or the beach, open plains, or high up on a mountain or tall building. In addition to the planets, from around the 14th through the 17th, the crescent moon joins the party for a lovely planetary tableau. Now, Venus will be really low in the sky. It'll be easier to observe on its own later in the summer, but for now, take advantage of this opportunity to observe all of the inner planets in a single view. May 26th brings a total lunar eclipse. Over several hours, the moon will pass through Earth's shadow, causing it to darken and usually become reddish in color. The red color comes from sunlight filtering through Earth's atmosphere, a ring of light created by all the sunrises and sunsets happening around our planet at that time. Because of the reddish color, a lunar eclipse is often called a blood moon. Just how red it will look is hard to predict, but dust in the atmosphere can have an effect. And keep in mind there have been a couple of prominent volcanic eruptions recently. Lunar eclipses take place when the moon is full, and this full moon happens when the moon is also near the closest point to Earth in its orbit, often called a supermoon. Unlike solar eclipses, which you should never look at, it's safe to view lunar eclipses with your eyes. And unlike solar eclipses, which tend to have a narrower viewing path, lunar eclipses are at least partly visible from anywhere on the planet's night side. Now, eclipses happen at the same moment, no matter where you are on Earth, but the time your clock reads during the eclipse depends, of course, on your time zone. The best viewing for this eclipse is in the Pacific Rim. That's the western parts of the Americas, Australia and New Zealand, and Eastern Asia. For the US, the best viewing will be in Hawaii, Alaska, and the western states. For the eastern U.S., the eclipse begins for you during dawn twilight. You may be able to observe the first part of the eclipse as the moon just starts to darken, but the moon will be near or on the horizon as Earth's shadow begins to cover it. The farther west you are, the more of the eclipse you'll be able to see before the moon sets that morning. Those in the western half of the country will be able to see almost the entire eclipse. So if you're in the path of this eclipse, check your local times for the best viewing near you. 
And if you're in the U.S., be prepared to get up early if you want to see this rare celestial event, a super blood moon eclipse. Here are the phases of the moon for May. You can catch up on all of NASA's missions to explore the solar system and beyond at nasa.gov. I'm Preston Dykes from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and that's what's up for this month. Always very interesting to hear about uh, what's going on in the night sky, and uh, especially the uh, the, the uh, blood moon coming up. Of course, that's a lunar eclipse, and so that'll be coming up the latter part of this month, early in the morning. So thanks to NASA.gov for that update. Just want to go over a few things today. The, today, the uh, primary topic I want to discuss is a rebuttal of Wayne Grudem's assessment uh, on Molinism, and so we're titling this uh, this podcast a rebuttal to Grudem's or of Grudem's uh, Molinism assessment. But before we do, we just want to make a few comments. Uh, want to just let you know that uh, Curtis and I are talking about the potential of uh, possibly having the podcast air on a different date uh we're not sure we're going to probably look to record the podcast through the week but maybe have them released uh sometime over the weekend or the first of even the next week but there's nothing set in stone on that but uh, be listening to the podcast in the upcoming weeks to uh, if there were to be a change in the release date of course this these are all recorded podcasts so uh we don't have a live show as of uh, as of right now. Uh, that might be something we look to in the future. Uh, but nonetheless, um, that that uh, it may, may be a possibility uh, coming up. Uh, secondly, I, I want you to pray for me. I want to ask everyone to pray for me. And this is actually part of the reason why we're looking at potentially uh, moving the release date. Uh, coming up in a couple weeks, it will be official. I will begin the last leg of uh, my uh, PhD journey at Liberty University. And uh, uh, let me just say, I know Liberty gets a lot of flack for different issues going on. And some have been, quite frankly, self-induced. Um, by by some, um, but nonetheless, uh, I want to just assure you that Liberty University is a great university. I know they get a lot of flack from different people in uh, a lot of different areas, and Liberty may not be for everyone. Uh, it's it's a very conservative school. Um, you know, I, I uh, I've been challenged in some areas. Uh, there have been some areas of disagreement. There have been some areas of great agreement. I would say there's probably more agreement than disagreement in most areas. But I have to say, uh, and, but that is something you should expect with any university. Uh, any university worth its weight is going to challenge you. And get you to think, even if you don't agree with everything, they're going to get you to think. And so, um, Liberty has been a great school f for me uh, and to me. Uh, I've grown wonderful friendships and relationships with both student and professors alike. And I feel that my life has uh, really been enriched. My spiritual and intellectual life has really been spiritually enriched by, or has been enriched by being there. Um, so this isn't to sell you to sell Liberty University to you. Pray for, pray about any school you attend. Uh, but Liberty, Gardner Webb, both they have been wonderful schools. Uh, I've been blessed to be able to take part in many. Uh, wonderful academic institutions, and so as this um, this is the last leg of uh, my academic journey uh, thus far. I, I, that's not to say that I'm not going to do more thing and more things in academics. I most certainly assuredly am, uh, but as this is bringing an end to my uh, time as a student, at least in this in this uh, phase uh, of the journey. I want to share with you four things that I've learned through my time in the Ph.D. program in theology and apologetics with a minor in church history. Number one, I've learned that the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. You know, um, I, I've been blessed with a with a pretty good sized library. Nothing compared to what some people have. I'll grant you that. But um, but these books remind me that the number of these books remind me, libraries and bookstores, they remind me that there's a wealth of information out there. And the things we learn even in a Ph.D. program are minute 
compared to all the wisdom that's out there in the world. Um, and all the wisdom in the world are, is minute compared to the wisdom of God. You know, I, I really eschew the mindset that that uh, academic degrees make us better than other people or give us some type of prominence. It really doesn't. If In all, uh, in my training, I, I've learned uh, to really, and this is another aspect I want to share. Uh, I was going to say it later, but I think it really fits well now, is humility. I really think the Ph.D. training has taught at least me humility uh, to know that there are a lot of smart people out there and there are a lot of great minds and so, you know, I think instead of uh, growing a big head uh, for, for anyone who's really taking their academic career seriously and uh, higher learning, you, you begin to understand that there are a lot of great minds out there and there's going to be a lot of mysteries that we're not going to solve. And so this really provides a, should provide a great deal of humility. Also, I think uh, I've learned through this program a third lesson, and that's been to really look at primary resources. And in fact, tonight, uh, towards the end of our podcast, as we look at Grudem's assessment of Molinism, well, we're going to go back and look at some primary resources to see what Molina and even Francisco Suarez has to say concerning the issue of, of Molinism. And so, you know, evaluate primary resources, especially in the church history segment of, of uh, my training. Going back and reading what the people actually said gives you more in-depth understanding of what the person is trying to communicate rather than a person who's trying to interpret the communication to you. It's like with science. Scientists are interpreting the data, but really go back and look at the data. Look at the data itself. Um, sometimes you need help interpreting the data. Uh, but but look at the data. Look at the primary resource. And, and the same thing go, holds true for any historical theological study. If you're doing an assessment of Basil of Caesarea, go back and see what Basil of Caesarea says. If you're doing an assessment of Molinism, it would behoove you to go back and see what the founders of the movement actually have to say. And so... Um, that's that's another thing I want to say. That you know, this this all provides humility, uh, the the need of checking primary resources, and then finally, I've learned this. And in fact, actually, I wrote an article on this recently for uh, for Moral Apologetics and for Bellator Christie. Uh, the, the need in listening, the need in uh, active listening, is is a tool that we really need to to practice and really need to to learn well. Communication requires two individuals communicating. And at one point, in some point in time, everyone needs to stop and listen. And I think that's the problem we have in the apologetics world, theological world, and in society in general, is that we're not taking the time to truly listen. You know, we often have, uh, and I've even been accused of this before, I, I don't see myself doing this, but I hope I'm not, but um, Lord forgive me if I am. But I think sometimes we use Facebook as a means to elevate ourselves. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. Um, we live in a in a very narcissistic society in, in uh, many ways where people want to be seen. People want to be heard. But, but how many times do we really take the time to really listen to what a person's saying? And in communication, listening is critically important. Um, we could very well miss out on what's trying to be said by not taking the time to really truly assess uh, what a person is trying to communicate. And so, that's been those have been those have been some of the lessons that I've learned through the my PhD journey. As the classroom portion is has concluded and and uh, the comps have been completed, I haven't heard back from them. Hopefully, everything went well in that regard. But uh, as I start this dissertation journey, the last leg of the program, uh, it's been really been um, really been um, uh, what's what's the word I want to use. Um, serendipitous in some ways, I guess you could say, to really stop and consider um, the things, the, the journey itself and, and the lessons learned over time and um, really have met some incredible people during my time at uh, Liberty. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, when I finished and when I concluded my last class, 
I did not have the emotions that I had anticipated when I first started. <laughs> I first I, I first thought that whenever I finished my last class in 2017, that it all looked so far, uh, that the journey looked to be so incredible. I didn't know if I'd be able to finish it because uh, there were so many classes and so much time spent. And and then now looking back uh, at the at, as the final class was taken and the final. Um, the, the final class had concluded, uh, Natural Theology with uh, Dr. Campbell, I, I really began to really tear up a little bit because I uh, realized that many of these wonderful, fantastic people that I had met throughout this four-year journey, I started in 2017, this four-year journey, uh, going into the fifth year, fifth and final year, God willing, if all goes well, um, I realized that many of the people that I had met, I'm, you know, I tried to keep communication with most of them, but I realized that there may be some people that I met in the program that uh, I may not ever be able to see again on this side of eternity. And some wonderful people I met from, from across the world who was in this program, and from doctors to lawyers to just a common country folk. And um, just it's just really, you know, it... Um, there are numerous words uh, that, that, that um, come to mind to describe this, but really it's been a fantastic journey, and I thank God for the opportunity to go through this. And um, I know that uh, some individuals, such as Chad Fultz, who was a good friend in the program who passed away from COVID-19 um, recently, and I, I know some people will see them again on, on the other side of eternity. And... Um, you know, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful program for me, and and um, just a fantastic journey. And I'm just honored to be be part of it, and and praying for a good finish. That's that's what I'm praying for. And of course, I guess in life, that's what we're all hoping to have a good finish. Well, with that being said, um, I also wanted to let one last thing before we get into the uh, the article is, as I want to say, I've been I've announced this on uh, on Facebook or social media, uh, but I had the great distinctive honor of being named senior contributor at moralapologetics.com, and I want to thank uh, doctors David and Mary Beth Baggett for having confidence in me and for the wonderful staff at moralapologetics.com, and um, do be much in prayer if you if you are at a church. Uh, contact Dr. Baggett and have him come speak at your church, especially once all the COVID restrictions are lifted and and um, you know things are back to normal, which things are getting there. I think we're almost there. Um, but nonetheless, uh, contact him and, and see if you could help out the Center for Moral Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. And so um, you'll be blessed by it. They're doing great work there. Dr. Baggett is a wonderful professor. Both of them, both he and his wife, Mary Beth, are wonderful professors. Uh, you know, and they have a heart for the Lord. Both of them do. So they're doing great work down there in Houston Baptist University. So consider uh, if uh, giving a contribution for this new center on moral apologetics. All right. With that being said, let's move into our uh, topic at hand. Wayne Grudem recently published the second edition uh, to a his his big major work some people may even call this his magnum opus called systematic theology an introduction to biblical doctrine well recently he released a second edition i think it was either this year or year before um the second edition adds a lot of new material uh in addition to to um laying out further details that um may not have been discussed in the first edition. And let me say, the, the vast majority, I mean, now, Grudem is coming from a Calvinist perspective, and if you've listened to the Bellator Christie podcast for any length of period of time, uh, for any, any length, you realize that I am not a Calvinist, and I have reasons for not ascribing to that position. Um, this puts me in the minority of, of new theologians. As it seems like the Reformed movement uh that in and of itself is really highly concentrated in Calvinism uh, is is a growing is a growing theological system here lately. I don't understand why, quite frankly, uh, but it is. It, it's a growing theological system, and um, but there's another perspective that's growing as well, 
in that, that perspective is Molinism, and it's been growing because of the work of William Lane Craig, who who really unveiled the the um, the the core tenets of this middle way. Not that I'm Buddhist, but this middle way uh, between uh, hardcore Arminianism and hardcore Calvinism. And so, if, you know, again, just as a recap for those who don't know what Molinism is, um, the the Molinism was uh, it was a uh, teaching given by uh, Louis de Molina, and he said he lived in from 1535 to 1600. Uh, he promoted this view, and uh, he, he said that um, that God not only had natural knowledge, the way things work, and free knowledge, the way things would be, he has knowledge between those two called middle knowledge because of its juxtaposition or its location found between the two juxtaposed um, positions of natural and free knowledge. Middle knowledge says that God knows what free creatures would do given certain circumstances. So it's not just that God knows the world he's going to create and the things that are going to happen, simple foreknowledge. He also knows what free creatures would choose. Now, so Grudem is not very kind to the Molinist perspective. Now, he does a fairly good job in describing the position as he as he um, goes forth and and he uh, even qu- gives a quotation of Molina in in on uh, page uh, four fifty seven. It says, in virtue of the most profound and inscrutable comprehension of each free will, he saw in his own essence what each what each such will or each creature would do with its innate freedoms as were it to be placed in this or that, or indeed in infinitely many order of things, uh, even though it would really be able, if so will, to do the opposite. Okay, and so... Um, Craig then gives an example wherein, whereas by his natural knowledge God knows that, say Peter, when placed under a certain set of circumstances, could either deny Christ or not deny Christ, being free to do either under identical circumstances, by his middle knowledge God knows what Peter would do if placed under those circumstances. Uh, now it's interesting that, um, and, and we're going to come back to this because it's interesting that um, Grudem talks about God's providence, talking about the whole issue of concurrence, God's permissive will in allowing certain things to happen, uh, His will working along with the wills of, of free creatures. Okay, however, he's very critical of Molinism here. He even equates this to a complicated version of Arminianism. So he, so he goes on to say, and I quote, Craig sees middle knowledge as an excellent way to reconcile Calvinism and Arminianism because predestination is preserved, making Calvinists happy, and libertarian human freedom is preserved, making Arminians happy. He says, he quotes Craig in saying, I am convinced that a Molinist theory of middle knowledge can go a long way towards reconciling Calvinist and Arminian views. So in response to this, He goes on to say, We should be clear, this is Grudem speaking, that the debate at this point is not about whether God knows how people would respond if various sets of circumstances came about. He actually affirms this in chapter 12. Grudem does. So he affirms a form of Molinism on pages 225 through 31. God does have this kind of knowledge, he affirms, whether we call it mental knowledge or so on and so forth. Even John Frame points out that such knowledge is already part of God's necessary knowledge. He says, instead, the question is whether this kind of, this theory of mental knowledge provides a correct understanding of how God sovereignly relates to human responsibility, and in particular, how God's predestination of individuals to be saved relates to human choices to accept Christ or reject Him. Okay, now wait a minute. Let's pause here. He already affirmed in chapter 12 of his book, pages 225 to 231, that God has this type of knowledge. He goes on to say, and I quote, God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. I read that previously, and I thought, well, he's a Molinist. But then when we come to Molinism, he says, well, no, this isn't a good theory. Uh, And then he offers four objections, four objections to the Molinist perspective. And so we want to go through these objections and kind of give a response to these uh, the, the objections that he gives as a kind of looking at what he says and see if there's any merit to his objections. He says, 
First, middle knowledge, and this is Grudem speaking, middle knowledge is a theory foreign to biblical descriptions of predestination. Middle knowledge promotes a theory far different from the way Scripture speaks about God choosing us as individuals to be saved, not just choosing to create one of many possible worlds and then a specific set of circumstances in which we would choose to believe, but choosing individual persons. Now, let me pause here and say, William Lane Craig has said numerous times, and I'm not trying to defend William Lane Craig, but he has defended. He has said numerous times that the whole issue of po- the possible worlds ensemble is a a a means to conceptualize counterfactual events. The the possible worlds ensemble is not. He's not saying that there are real possible numerous possible worlds out there. That, that's not what Molina is doing, and that's not what William Lane Craig is doing. This is a thought experiment, quite honestly. It's a thought experiment to, to see, to, to conceptualize the different possibilities that exist. Okay, so, but this goes back to in the actual theological system, the actual world, looking at how God sees individuals in, in times past and knowing fully and freely what free creatures would choose to do because he knows completely their psychology. He knows completely everything there is to know about them. God is the ultimate psychologist. He knows everything about the person. And so anyhow, he gives um, some scriptures. He gives Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, he says, uh, in this it says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, there's no problem with that in Molinism. He did choose us. God's permissive will is that everybody would be saved. That were God's desired will, I should say, is that everyone will be saved. Uh, and those who he knew would respond to his grace, uh, not in the Arminian conception, but normally, but really, though, because he knows the people individually, he knows the circumstances in which he will place them. He he knows everything there is to know about each person. In Romans eight, it's very fascinating. He uses this passage of scripture because it seems to really further propagate the Molinist perspective. Romans eight twenty eight through thirty says, "For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined for knowledge, prognosco." Some people see this as a an elective act, but really prognosco means the for prior knowledge. He prior, you know, because so, if he uses this in proorzio as he uses for the predestined, it really makes no sense why you would use both terms together. But he's he's saying he foreknew individuals, he had prior knowledge of individuals before creation, and he also chose to predestine to be conformed to the image of his son, in order they might be called the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called; and those he called, he justified; and those he justified, he also glorified. So. Here again, you know, I, I would to say that this theory is is uh, foreign to biblical descriptions of predestination. I think is an error. It is is an it is in error because there is this concept of God's divine foreknowledge. We see this in even the book of Jeremiah, chapter one. God foreknew Jeremiah. Before Jeremiah was ever born, before the foundation of the world, God foreknew him and chose him to be a prophet. Now, he doesn't say necessarily why he chose him to be a prophet, but he made that choice. Maybe there was something in Jeremiah. Even though, yes, we are sinners, absolutely, but there was something in Jeremiah that God used, for some reason, God chose him to do this task. And then the Calvinists will say, well, we'll... um, you know, he, he chose of his own free will. Well, well and good. But could there not be a reason why God chose? Or are we just going to say God flippantly chose for no reason? I think the Molinist perspective gives us an idea that, to understand maybe that there was something going on at that time. Something that God saw in that person. Maybe according to, because he chose the person because he knew that person would respond to God's prior calling upon that person's life. Uh, I don't see there's anything in here that is foreign to the con- conception, biblical conception 
of predestination. There's nothing in middle knowledge that is foreign to this conception whatsoever. So I, I think that the first objection fails. First, the, the Grudem's first objection fails. Secondly, he goes on to say, his second objection says, and I quote, Middle knowledge is a speculative theory devoid of explicit biblical support. Scripture nowhere appeals to the unique features of middle knowledge theory as a solution to the question of how to reconcile God's sovereignty and human choice or the question of election and reprobation. Okay, so let me just pause here and just say, the sword cuts both ways. Contrary to what many Calvinists would say, the Bible does not explicitly promote the Calvinist agenda either. So, so the Calvinist uh, theory is also a speculative theory, interpreting what the Scripture says, how, how it, you piece it together. I mean, all systematic theology is, in a sense, speculative, because we're speculating how different passages of Scripture work together. We're systematizing those them together. We're lumping them together. I mean, for instance, I, I've seen many Calvinists, and I'm not trying to pick on Calvinists. I've seen just as many Calvinists as I have Arminians who've done hermeneutical gymnastics to get around passages of Scripture that they don't like. For instance, I've seen you know the same thing holding true with Second uh, Peter. Where, where God says, it's not the will of God, or Peter says, it's not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I've heard many people say, well, Peter's talking to the, the, the uh, Christian crowd. Well, that makes no sense. It's nonsensical to say to a group of people who's already saved that it's not God's will for any of you to perish, okay? He's talking about the world, John 3.16 is using language speaking of the world. And that's not even to, to mention Ezekiel 18, where God says it's not his desire to send anyone to, to, to send uh, anyone to judgment, but that he would rather a person repent and be saved. Now a person can make a, can do the same thing. Saying, well, he's speaking specifically to Israel. But is it not God's desire to save people? It seems like that the whole notion that God would just choose to condemn someone without giving them an opportunity to respond to His grace, it seems like that's counterintuitive to the whole message of the gospel. Quite honestly, I think that if you look at the total message of Scripture, hardcore, not, not talking about the lighter versions, but hardcore Calvinism seems itself a speculative theory devoid of explicit biblical support. Um, so I think the sword cuts both ways. And just how explicit do, does it have to be before it to ring true for an individual? So I think what we see here is I think we can see bias. And of course people are going to say I'm biased. Well, you know, I am. <laughs> I am biased to a degree. All of us have some bias. But I think what we, what we find here is we want to limit our bias to be able to look at the data as it stands, and not to allow our bias to influence the data. And in my opinion, I think Grudem allows his bias to overcome the data in this sense. Um, I think, you know, and so before I make a total conclusion on the matter, let's go on to the third, the third uh, objection. And the third objection comes on page 460. And he says here, Third, God cannot determine a set of circumstances without determining millions of human choices. Okay, so now, this is not necessarily a problem, and, quite honestly, it, it doesn't necessarily pose a problem to the Molinist perspective, as we're going to see Francisco Suarez here in a minute. Uh, William Lane Craig says, By knowing what every possible free creature would do in any possible situation, God can, by bringing, and this is in the book Middle Knowledge, God can, by bringing about that situation, know what the creature will freely do. And I think Craig is right. There's always the possibility, the possibility that the person wouldn't choose that way. But God in His infinite knowledge knows that the person will choose that way. So, so, <laughs> so, um, the uh, groom is saying that because God knows the decision, 
that the person could not choose otherwise. Okay, well, God may know something to be true, but that doesn't mean that a person still doesn't have the choice. Okay, so for instance, if I were to take a time machine and see the results of next year's Super Bowl, and then I come back and then I watch the, the Super Bowl in time knowing how every single play is going to go down and who's going to be the ultimate victor, even though I know how the how it's going to go down, that doesn't mean that the players don't still have the free choice to make the plays in the manner that they do. So knowledge does not necessarily take away the freedom that a person has. Um so, in here, let me read a passage of Scripture. Uh, not, not Scripture, I'm sorry. This is not Scripture. But this is something from, um, from Francisco Suarez. And he's giving the... Uh, this is on creation, conservation, and concurrence. Metaphysical disputations, 20 through 22. This is disputation uh, 22. And he's uh, going to talk... He goes through some objections, uh, answering some objections uh, about God's concurrence. And he says on um, Disputation 22, Section 4, uh, 31, As for the second objection, one may reply by denying the inference, for it is by his certain knowledge and act of will that God concurs. Okay, this is God's will working concurrently in cooperation with free creatures with a created will for each of its acts. And so he does not concur accidentally or by chance with a created will, but instead occurs by his most wise providence. And even though he does not always predetermine by an absolute act of will what the created will is going to do, nonetheless he does not thereby aim unknowingly toward whatever the created will is going to affect, for either he predetermines or at least permits whatever this type of secondary cause is going to do, and he also sees with absolute clarity and certainty what is going what it is going to do, and this is what he concurs with by his act of will. And so here essentially what uh, what uh, Francisco Suarez is arguing is that by God's permissive and predetermined will that he can allow free creatures to do certain things in certain ways. And this does not, by his concurrence, this does not remove the freedom of the will upon each and every, upon the um, person. Now, here, uh, excuse me, not Grudem, Suarez is integrating the principles of Thomism in with Molinism. And I think that's possible to do because Thomas Aquinas uses the whole philosophy of God being the first cause, moving on secondary creatures and bringing about secondary causes. Suarez is saying that God moves on individuals and some individuals are going to respond certain ways, other individuals are going to respond other ways, but God permits these different things to happen, some by his predetermined will, to bring about certain ends, some by his permissive will, especially acts of evil. God didn't do that. He's allowing certain things to happen because he has a utilitarian sense of doing something greater in the end by the thing that has permitted to occur. Okay, So here, Grudem, I think, misconstrues the whole concept of middle knowledge. And he even gives the example of, and I'll just summarize here, he said, I am here as a result of other ancestors. Uh, he, he is in the United States as a result of his great-grandparents deciding to immigrate from Norway in the 1870s, meeting and deciding to get married, and so on and so forth. He's also here because of the influence of his professors at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and because some conservative faculty members at Princeton Seminary decided to found it. Okay, and he goes on to say that this is how he's here. He talks about the founding fathers of the United States. He talks about the, the work of Moses and, and the work of all these different individuals to create the circumstances that he now enjoys. There's, there's no objection to that in Molinism whatsoever. There's no objection to that whatsoever. But Grudem misconstrues the whole notion of circumstances and human freedom. Because here's the thing, he doesn't recognize. First of all, 
he still, even though he was born in the United States, he still made the conscious decision to remain in the United States. Now, if he wanted to, he could have packed up and moved back to Norway if he wanted to. That would have been his choice. And so that set of circumstances, so he would be responding to the set of circumstances by, by taking action and moving elsewhere. And additionally, Grudem did not have to attend Westminster Theological Seminary. He could have very well attended somewhere else. He could have, he could have chosen the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary or Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Liberty University School of Divinity, or any anyway, school of divinity may not have been there whenever he went through. I'm not sure what year he went through there, and, and, uh, but he could have. Biola University, the Talbot School of Theology there, he could have gone there. He could have gone to numerous schools. He could have gone to Princeton if he wanted to. The, the point is, is the set of circumstances, yes, it limits, may limit our choices, but it does not remove the choices and the ability to choose certain things uh, as we are given the ability to do so. Now, let me just quickly say here that there are four viewpoints of human freedom. First of all, there is the concept of determinism. And that is that everything is predetermined, that there's no choice whatsoever. Compatibilism is the idea that uh, everything is, is, uh, determines how we respond, but we still have a, the ability to respond, but it's only compatible to a, a small, minute degree. Uh, so, so we can move, but only as we're moved to move. Um, and then concurrentism is another viewpoint. I'm going to get back to that in a moment. But then libertarian free will says that everyone has complete freedom in all things to make decisions. The concurrent model is actually what most Calvinists, excuse me, not Calvinists, what most Molinists hold. King Keithley argues for this, and in fact, in fact uh, Francisco Suarez also argues for the concurrent model. And that is to say that there are some things that we can't choose. We can't choose where we're born. Concurrence will agree with Grudem in that regard. Yeah, we can't choose where we're born. You know, our our circumstances, there may be some people that only have the choice of between um, vanilla and chocolate compared to those who have a Baskin-Robbins and have 100-plus choices of ice cream from which to choose. Uh, the choices may be different, but... That doesn't mean that a person still doesn't have the choice to choose, a choice to make. A person at the end of the day can choose two different flavors of ice cream. It's really conflating, I think, the whole concept is, and um, and and let me move. Let me save the last point to uh, for the last objection, and that's the fourth objection. Grudem says middle knowledge is inconsistent with the essential claims of both Calvinism and Arminianism. Now wait a minute. Previously, he claimed that Molinism was a more complicated version of Arminianism. And I think he says this in the conclusion. Um, so let me, let me see if I can find this. Um, yeah, he says later on on page 462 that uh, that Molinism is a complicated version of the Arminian view that, predestin that predestination is based on foreknowledge of a person's faith that requires that God must determine millions of human choices that lead up to any specific set of circumstances and that is inconsistent with the claims that are essential to both Calvinism and Arminianism. However, he says... He said prior to that that it's a complicated version of Arminianism. Well, which is it? <laughs> So there's there's some distinct problems there. Um, furthermore, let, let me just say here that it's anachronistic to claim that Molinism is a version of Armenianism when Arminius came about 150 years, give or take, after Louis de Molina lived. <laughs> Molina came before Arminius. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas and Louis de Molina. Now, Louis de Molina was around the same time frame that you find Luther and Calvin, but still, uh, Arminius was a reformed Calvinist. <laughs> he he was one who was trying to reform Calvinism itself. So so yeah, it's 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 anachronistic to claim 
that Molinism is a version of Arminianism when Molinism came first. Um, and I disagree with the whole concept that middle knowledge does not provide a better solution than Calvinism or Arminianism. I think William Lane Craig is right. I think it provides an acceptable middle ground between the two, as does Thomism. Thomism and Molinism are a little different, I'll grant you that. But but it's not based um it's not based just specifically on individuals, okay? So let me read the conclusion, and I'll, and I'll close up with four points. In conclusion, and this is what Grudem says, Molinism proposes a speculative theory that has no explicit biblical support, that is inconsistent with the biblical descriptions of God choosing individual persons, that is a complicated version of the Arminian view that predestination is based on a foreknowledge of a person's faith that requires that God must determine millions of human choices that lead up to any specific set of circumstances, and that is inconsistent with the claims that are essential to both Calvinism and Arminianism. I honestly believe, and, and this is no disrespect to Grudem at all, Grudem is a scholar par excellence. I don't agree with his Calvinism, okay? And I think most of the things that he says in systematic theology are pretty much dead on, pretty much spot on. He hits the nail on the head on the vast majority of what he writes in systematic theology. However, he seems to be greatly misconstrued when it comes to the whole concept of Molinism, quite honestly. I'll, you know, so so here, are the four, here are the four problems I have. Number one, there are good biblical reasons to suggest mental knowledge is true. Two, there are no explicit biblical passages that uh, that that prove Calvinism either. I mean, if you, how explicit do you need to get? I mean, there are not even um, explicit passages that says the Trinity is true. But I think there are strong implicit reasons to believe the Trinity is, is, is true. I think you see it in the baptism of Jesus. I think you see it in several passages of Scripture. It's there. But we piece it together. But you don't see the word Trinity explicitly stated in the Scripture. So I think that's a little. I think that's. Um, I think that's a little problematic. I think that's a little um, not dishonest. That's not. I've had a long day at work, friends. I, my mind's not firing on all cylinders tonight. Some of the words I'm wanting to get out won't come to my mind. But. Uh, um, but anyhow, it's 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 a little. It's not dishonest. That's that's a too strong of a word. But it's it's um it, it's not it's not very well put. I'll I'll put it that way. It's it doesn't seek to try to understand the the um the concept in its entirety. It's not completely honest with the core concepts of Molinism. Let's just let's just say that. Not saying Grudem is dishonest. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't think the the conclusion necessarily flows from the data we find in Molinism. Um, number three, Molina, Molina argued that election arose not from the choices that people make, uh, but rather it uh, from the moral fabric, or not the moral fabric of the person, but from God's understanding of who the person is. And, uh, and and I'm going to read some. I'm going to read the four main proposals by Molina here in just a moment uh, from from his book on divine foreknowledge. He, he gives four reasons for holding to the middle view to, to the middle knowledge viewpoint. And then the last problem is there's a conflation of circumstances and choices. It almost if if you held to what Grudem seems to be positing, it almost seems like a caste system you find. In some cultures, where if a person's born in a certain circumstance or a certain situation, that there's no way they can work themselves out of that situation, that they're forever doomed to be in that certain caste. Well, I don't think that's true. Okay, uh, I think there are many people who are born in, in less than ideal circumstances who've done very well for themselves, and it's come from hard work. It's come from determination. Uh, for instance, I'll, gi I'll give you an example. My dad, he was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Um, He's probably born with a broken wooden spoon, quite frankly. I mean, because my grandparents, I love them to death. I don't mean anything bad towards them or against them. But they didn't have a lot. My dad grew up 
in less than ideal circumstances because they didn't have a lot growing up. However, <laughs> you know, my grandpa, he even had, uh, I, I'm about guarantee he had uh, assured that he had PTSD. He had some problems that came from the war. He had some emotional issues that he had that he was trying to work through, and um, wasn't always the easiest person to get along with. Even though we love him dearly, uh, but when he wasn't always the easiest person to know. I'm talking about my grandpa Chilton. I love him to death, and, and can't wait to see him again in heaven. I believe he's there. I can't wait to see him again. But he he had a lot of issues he was dealing with, and he wasn't always the most pleasant person. And so my dad and my uncle, they they weren't born under the most ideal circumstances. But let's give my dad and my uncle props. They worked hard. They made the conscious conscious decision to work hard to provide for their families. Even though they were born with not a lot, they provided for their families and worked hard, earned a great living. And they both retired now, enjoying their retirement. Okay? Just because we're born in a set of circumstances, maybe we're born in less ideal circumstances, that doesn't mean that we can't make the conscientious choice to work hard and and do better for ourselves. Okay, That's a choice. That's a choice. Even if we're born with less ideal circumstances, it's going to be harder for some people than it is going to be for others. Let's, let's face it, that's true. However, if you go by what Grudem seems to be positing, then no one has the opportunity to do something different. I think this is the strength of Molinism to say in the show that people have freedom to bring about certain things as God permits them the ability to do. Now, God wants the very best for us. I think that's one thing that Molinism and Arminianism excels at. Uh, Arminianism excels at in understanding the good moral character of God. We serve a good, loving God who loves us and who actually likes us, and that's an amazing thing to consider. It really is. So let me just close here with reading from the source, a primary source, and this comes from uh, Louis de Molina himself. And I want to let him answer for himself against the objections that were made by Wayne Grudem and and let you decide for yourself. So, the conclusion, Molina says, as regards to the first part, is so certain that I would not hesitate to say that its negation is dangerous from the point of view of the faith. So, the first proof, he says, it is, and he's talking about middle knowledge, it is clear from sacred scripture. Now, here, Grudem said that there's no evidence. But Molina says it's clear from sacred scripture that the supreme God has certain cognition of some future contingents that depend on human free choice, but that neither have existed nor, will, nor ever will exist in reality, and that hence do not exist in eternity either. Therefore, it is not simply because future contingents exist outside their causes in eternity that God knows them with certainty. And he gives some examples of this. He says this is clear in from Matthew eleven twenty one. If the wonder where Jesus says, if the wonders that had been worked among you had been worked in Tyre and Sidon, they would long ago have repented in sackcloth and ashes. He gives a counterfactual there. He goes on to say Molina does, because this hypothesis on which it was going to occur was not in fact actualized. This repentance never did and never will exist in reality, and yet it was a future contingent dependent on the free choice of human beings. Okay. Likewise, in 1 Kings 23, 10-12, David consulted the Lord about whether Saul was going to descend upon Keilah, and the Lord responded, He will descend. He consulted again about whether the men of Keilah, who had received nothing but kindness from David, were going to hand him and the men with him over into the hands of Saul. And the Lord responded, They will hand you over. Notice uh, they, notice, God knew these two future contingents, which depended on human choice, and he revealed them to David. Yet they never have existed and never will exist in reality, and thus they do not exist in eternity either. Here again, two examples from Scripture that proves uh, that middle knowledge can be supported. Okay, Now he goes on to say the second proof, and I won't, I'll kind of limit this as we go on. Through his natural knowledge, God comprehends himself. Now listen very closely to the words of Molina. 
Through his natural knowledge, God comprehends himself, and in himself, he comprehends all the things that exist imminently in him, and thus the free choice of any creature whom he is able to make through his omnipotence, and you could add his omniscience as well. Therefore, before any determination of his will, by virtue of the depth of his natural knowledge, by which he infinitely surpasses each of the things he contains eminently in himself, he discerns what the free choice of any creature would do by its own innate freedom, given the hypothesis that he should create in it this or that order of things, with these or those circumstances or aids. And then he goes on, God would foresee that very act and not the one that he in fact foresees would be performed by that creature. So anyhow, in God's self, he is able to see everything before the creation of the world. He knows all people. He knows all reactions. He knows all responses. This isn't something that's coming from the person. It's coming from God. In God's knowledge, in God's wisdom, in God's sovereignty, he knows these things. In the third proof, God does not get his knowledge from things, but knows all things in himself and from himself. Therefore, the existence of things, whether in time or eternity, contributes nothing to God's knowledge or to God's knowing with certainty what is going to be or not to be. For prior to any existence on the part of the objects, objects God has within himself the means whereby he knows all things perfectly and fully, and this is why the existence of created things contributes no perfection to the cognition he has of them and does not cause any change in that cognition. Let me go on to say, in God, then, intuitive cognition and abstractive cognition, or better, cognition of simple intelligence, do not differ in any, any way Rather, depending only on whether or not its objects exist, one and the same cognition, equally evident and equally perfect in its own right, is called either an intuitive cognition or else a cognition of simple intelligence, as was shown in Article 9. And then the final proof. In God, there is providence and predestination. Whoa, Molina argues for predestination. So we said, in God there is providence and predestination with regard to future contingents. Therefore, there is a precognition by which he foreknows with certainty. This doesn't limit free, free will, okay? But he knows with certainty before anything exists what is or is not going to be on the hypothesis and condition that he should grant this or that assistance or means or arrange things in this way or some other way. If this is not so, then how did he preordain and arrange things by his providence, intending good contingent effects via both natural and free causes, while permitting, doesn't predestined, but permitting evil contingent effects in order that he might draw forth from them greater goods. And there's a lot more we could go into, you know, it, the disputations of, of Molina. So there are different conclusions he makes, and we're running out of time. But let me just say here, this shows the reason why we need to go back and look at primary sources. Some of the things that Grudem seems to argue against Molinism are actually promoted by Molinism. I mean, some of the arguments Molina, I mean, excuse me, Grudem makes are actually arguments that Molina himself makes. So again, this is proof positive why we need to go back, why we need to go back to the primary sources and see what the authors actually said. Now, in regard to God knowing with certainty, future contingent events. This doesn't remove the ability of a person to choose this or that. Just because God knows what a person's going to choose doesn't mean that the person doesn't have a choice. So here again, I like this word concurrent. This is something even, by the way, Wayne Grudem and many other uh, theologians will say, that God's providence, God's sovereignty, works in and through free 
creatures. Okay, this is an Augustinian approach as well. This is, I think, what makes Molinism head and shoulders above both Calvinism and Arminianism. It is a middle way. Thomism does much the same. He doesn't go the ground of uh, the way of middle knowledge per se. Uh, but Suarez, I think, combines in his congruous form of Molinism, combines the core tenets of, of Thomism in with Molinism to make a very interesting conception of the way God moves um, and, and sovereignly acts uh, in a world with free creatures. Now, could God have made a world, perfect world, where people didn't sin and people didn't do wrong? Of course he could have. But I think if we look at the moral apologetic aspect of God, then we can say that it's probably more, it was, it was, I hate to say more good, <laughs> that sounds awful, but it may have been better for uh, God to create a world where free creatures exist, permitting not foreordaining, but permitting some of the things to happen that God didn't desire to happen. It's not God's will that bad things happen, but God has to permit those things to give us free will. This brings up a question of why does God freely choose to create individuals whom he knows will freely reject him? Well, it may be that it was better for God to, in the end, it may be a more good thing, a better thing, for God to create life and allow the person to exist than to not exist. This opens up more issues that we could discuss in later podcasts. But one of the things I want you to, to see, Grudem, while he's a scholar par excellence, I really think his assessment of Molinism is found lacking. Uh, it really is, As I, I, and I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that he didn't check the primary sources. William Lane Craig does a wonderful job with Molinism, uh, it, prom- promoting and propagating Molinism. He does; he's a scholar par excellence in Molinism. But I think it's always helpful to go back to the primary sources and see what they have to say. Well, anyhow, regardless whether you are Calvinist or non-Calvinist or Molinist or Thomist or or uh, Whatever the case may be, know that we love you and we're praying for you. May God richly bless you. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with yours truly, Brian Chilton, flying solo on a night where Curtis Evelo couldn't be with us. We're looking forward to our next podcast when Curtis rejoins us. But until that time, we say God bless and soldier on, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com the opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates the Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved the opening theme is the song crucified written by John and Michaela Limanis performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. 
Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question.